The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au that you would again make alive those who are spiritually dead. Father, we pray that there would be souls saved for the kingdom of God this day. Father, we ask you these things and we plead with you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, by God's sovereign overruling, we are in Acts 2, 22-41 which, as you just heard, is Peter's Pentecost morning sermon and includes the great news that Jesus had been raised from the dead, whom we and they have crucified. In Joel 2, verse 21, Peter, through Joel the prophet, promised us a Savior. He said, the Lord will save all those who call on him. And then from verse 22 all the way to verse 40, Peter describes this Savior to us. But for the first century listener, the Savior they're hearing about and the Savior they're being given is not the Savior that they wanted. What type of Savior do you think they were looking for? They wanted their Messiah to come and rescue them from Rome. They wanted a Savior who would restore them to political and military superiority over their enemies. They wanted deliverance from a political enemy called Rome. They wanted a reestablished kingdom over a tiny piece of land. They were not interested in being saved from the wrath of Almighty God. They perceived themselves as already rescued from it. We should judge them for their attitude, not at all. What type of savior is our culture looking for in the day in which we live in? My sons no longer take me to movies because when I go to a movie theater, I come out and I begin to recount for them all the messianic symbolisms in the movies we've just watched and I succeed in ruining the movie for them, even though I've enjoyed it. But you know what? Books and television and movies are the way in which our culture is displaying that they are in fact looking for a savior. Have you noticed in the last 10 or 15 years, the sudden increase in all the Marvel comic movies and all the superhero movies that are filling our theaters? Movie makers are spending hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars creating movies, and they're all describing the fact that our culture is looking for a savior. We want a savior of superhuman ability and strength. We want a savior with a complex character, massive, impressive power, but yet a flawed and failing character and personality. We want a savior with a dark and mysterious past, a savior who is a sinner just like us. We want a dark knight who rescues and saves, if necessary, from outside the law. We want a savior who is able to save us from every external threat and problem, but who is totally uninterested in demanding fundamental, personal, internal change. 
To sum it up, we want rescue without reformation. We want to continue in sin with someone strong enough to free us from all the consequences of that very sin. But what we want is not what we truly need. And if you stop and think about it, praise God that He did not give us the Savior that we wanted. He gave us the Savior that we need. We need a Savior who can remove God's wrath against us. We need a Savior who can deal not only with the awful, unending consequences of sin, which is an eternity in hell. We need a Savior who can deal with sin itself. We need a Savior who can make us right with God. That's the Savior we need. Peter unveils this Savior to them and us, and he does so in seven great descriptions of the Savior in verses 22 all the way to verse 41. Don't worry, we're not going to look at all seven, but I'll list them for you. This Jesus is the man who is displayed as approved by God, and we see that in verse 22. Secondly, this Jesus is the Lamb delivered by God's plan and foreknowledge in verse 23. Thirdly, this Jesus is the sacrifice crucified and killed by us in both verse 23 and verse 36. Fourthly, this Jesus is the Messiah raised up by God. We're celebrating sworn that Jesus rose from the dead. Fifthly, this Jesus is the King of Kings, exalted by God and seated at his right hand in verse number 33. And sixthly, this Savior has been made both Lord and Christ in verse 36. And seventh and finally, he is Jesus, forgiving sin and pouring out his Holy Spirit in verse number 38. Look at these four descriptions, but listen to a message this week. Uh, to pastors about preaching. One of the things this uh, pastor from America said is sometimes you want to start with the ending. Well, that doesn't sound right to me, but okay. He said, you want to start with the ending. Give them some idea about the application. What should they do with this message? My hope and prayer is you come into Noble Park Baptist Church every Sunday morning and sit and listen to a message that you're not simply ticking a box, that you have heard your weekly sermon, you can go home now and enjoy your roast beef dinner. My hope and prayer is as you come into this place and we sit together under the sound of the Word of God, that we go out from this place with a determination to do something about it. I want to give you four things, four things I want you to do as we listen together to this message. Number one, from verse 22, I want you to hear these words. I want you to listen and listen well to what is being said. And as I said in my prayer, I mean very much so that God the Holy Spirit would speak to all of our hearts. Not just your hearts, my heart too. Secondly, I want you from verse 41 to receive these words. I want you to take them to heart. I want you to apply that to your own heart. I want you to accept the truth of Scripture as God's word to you. It isn't just an ancient book written to somebody else thousands of years ago. It is God's living word written to every single one of us. Thirdly, from verse 38, I want you to repent. I'm not talking just about the unbeliever, I'm talking about all this. 
A life of repentance we're called to is an ongoing lifestyle of repentance. If you're a Christian here, I want you to ask the Lord to show you the habits and attitudes and thoughts that you must repent of. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, as you hear this description unfolded about the Lord Jesus, rejoice in your heart. My hope and prayer is for all of us who know the Lord is as we are speaking the words of God, that all of our hearts are rising up in praise and worship for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, listen for His voice speaking to you. You're here anyway. You're in this room for the next 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it may be. Listen to what God is saying to you. The fourth thing is more of a long-term thing. From verse 38, I want you to be baptized if you are not already baptized. Displaying the change of heart that God has made. Christian, if you've submitted to following Christ, but you have not obeyed the Lord in baptism, then know, know this. His command for you to obey is to follow Him in the waters of baptism. Well, let's look at these four descriptions of the Savior that we all desperately need. I want you to notice, first of all, this Jesus is the man displayed as approved by God. Notice the text in verse number 22. Uh, Peter writes and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Jesus is truly man. Flesh, blood, hair, teeth, and bones. He understands our human weaknesses having the same. Jesus got tired, he got weakened, he was hungry, he was saddened. When they flung the scourge down upon his back, he felt pain. The Bible describes times when he was tired and needed to rest, and when he was asleep in the stern of a boat because he was tired. He was truly mad, just as we are. Yet without sin, the Bible says, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Where we fail, he triumphed exceedingly. He resisted every temptation to its full measure and did not once came in. I want you to notice something else. The word attested there, it means more than merely displaying. It means he was displayed as having God's approval. At Jesus' baptism, the Father spoke from heaven, This is my Son, with whom I am greatly pleased, in whom I delight. The Father showed off the Son. He held him up, not just to display how wonderful he is, but to display to everybody watching that he was approved of God. He was God's man, brought forth for God's time to accomplish God's work. Peter gives three names to the things he does in verse 22. He describes them as works and wonders and signs. They're mighty works that cause astonishment to all those who watch. Remember the scene in the, the tabernacle, not tabernacle, in the synagogue of Capernaum, and Jesus is preaching, and all the people there are looking to them, wow, such teaching with great authority. And then he cuts the demon, and they say, wow, such teaching, and he even has power over the demons. They were astonished and amazed at the works that God was doing through him. They're also 
mighty works that are signs. The idea there is that those works as Christ did them would direct our attention to the message and the meaning behind them. He was showing the wonderful work of God in him and of the wonderful work of salvation that he was in the process of working. There are wonders that display Jesus is God's approved man. God displayed Jesus' deity through some of those mighty works. God displayed his deity with authority to forgive sin. You remember the scene? The paralyzed man comes down to the roof and Jesus says, Be of good cheer, son, your sins are forgiven. Of course, they're all going out there. Who's he to forgive sin? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. Get out and walk the hole. And all of a sudden, this man springs to his feet. I'd love to see that moment. Can you imagine the Pharisees, all those religious hypocrites standing there, mumbling in their own beards? And this man leaps up, reaches down with full strength, picks up his bed, tucks him in his arm, and walks out the door. He displayed. His deity with authority to forgive sin. He displayed his deity. He stood outside the tomb of Lazarus. He had power over life and death, displaying that he is God, God's approved man as well. He displayed his deity with power over the weather as he stilled storms and calmed the seas. He displayed his deity with power to create. I often wonder how did Jesus do it when he fed the thousands? I think he literally sat there and he just kept creating bread as he was having to get out. That would have been crazy to see. He's more, more, more man. It wasn't work for him. Just as surely as God had spoken into existence all of creation, everything we could see, Jesus just calmly created bread as he fed thousands and thousands to the full. God displayed Jesus' deity, knowing the convicted of sin in the middle of a heated debate with some of his worst enemies. He looks around and says, Which one of you convicts me of sin? Bill. Nobody can bring a word to convict them. God displayed his deity. He announced his deity to the high priest during his trial. Jesus was declared innocent by the governor Pilate. And this Jesus was displayed by God to us as having God's approval. Notice verse 22 also says this. And Peter speaking to those who were there in the crowds, probably there seeing him throughout his journeys around Galilee and Judea. And he says, as you yourselves know, He's speaking to devout Jews from every nation under heaven, made with other languages. These original recipients have seen these mighty words. These original recipients have heard of Jesus' words and works and miracles, powers, signs, and wonders. And Peter, in a masterful stroke, he convinced them of their sin. He said, you yourselves know this is true. God displayed Jesus to them and to us as his approved man. We read those words of scripture, read the stories of Jesus. We can see clearly God's hand and God's work in everything he did. And he said, but the question must be asked, how then did this Jesus, approved by God, filled with God's spirit, doing mighty works, come to be crucified? Did God lose control of the situation? Did God abandon him? I mean, don't forget his words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said that. 
was there some secret sin that Jesus committed that nobody knew about, that the writers knew about, that God saw in God in just anger, he released him to be crucified and put to death? What happened? How did such a man, approved by God, come to die on a cross? No doubt those men standing there at the foot of Peter, wherever he's speaking, are thinking to themselves, wait a minute, this man approved by God, he died on a cross, and we all saw it. What you notice in verse 23, the Bible says, This Jesus, I love the way Peter writes that. This Jesus, very emphatic and very precise. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Death was a part of God's plan for Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He grew up in Nazareth. He was taught and trained as a carpenter according to the definite plan of God. He began his ministry at 30 years of age according to the definite plan of God. He was betrayed by a friend named Judas. He was denied by another friend named Peter. He was abandoned by all of his friends and followers. He was delivered by those responsible to protect him, the priests, the Herodians, and the Pharisees. But God's plan had not gone pear-shaped. It had not failed. He did not miss a step. God did not abandon him. God did not forget, lose control, lose the plot, none of those things. Everything happened exactly and precisely according to God's plan. God's plan from the beginning has always included the actions of sinful men. God is not the cause of those sinful actions, and God is not responsible for those sinful actions. Those men are. But God, in His brilliant sovereignty and grace and mercy, He uses those actions to accomplish His purposes. Jesus knew that Peter would deny Him. He even predicted it. Jesus knew that Judas would betray Him. He predicted it and actually confronted it with the fact at the Lord's Supper. God's definite plan always included Jesus' betrayal, denial, and rejection. The triune God always has a definite plan for our salvation. The very fact that believers, believers sorry, are chosen and elect from before creation demands that God also have a plan in place for our salvation also prior to creation. How could God determined to save sinners without a way in which to save them. Jesus was, as the hymn goes, the Lamb crucified before the foundation of the world. It was planned out. His betrayal, his denial, his abandonment to death has always been a part of God's plan. God's eternal plan for redemption was always for Jesus to die for his people with both physical, emotional suffering. Brother brought to us this morning at the Lord's table, the Lamb of God. God's Lamb chosen to bear away the sin of His people. God's perfect, true Lamb of God, whose blood was shed, that God might see Christ's blood applied to us and, in a sense, pass over us, and judgment would not fall upon us. God is sovereign over all the affairs of Jesus' life. And I want to give you a message this morning for those of you who are struggling with one circumstance or another. Christian, listen. Be encouraged, even in the worst circumstances. God has not forgotten you. 
needed. God has not forgotten you. For my friend Ian Williams and Sherry Lynn, as they are preparing to bury their son in his 20s, God has not forgotten you. God knows exactly what he's doing. You have not slipped out of God's grasping fingers. God is not busy elsewhere. God is intimately involved and understanding of all your circumstances and situation. And God is bringing you through those difficult times for his glory, for your good, and by the way, for our good too. As we as a body learn to minister to one another, to get alongside of one another, to encourage and cheer, to help one another through. The reason why he made us a body tied together, bound together as blood brothers and sisters in the blood of Christ is that we might link arms with those who are struggling and failing and we might carry the burden for one another in a little while to help each other through. God is in control. As some of you are looking up on the bottom of what seems like a very dark well, and so far up the light you can't even see the light anymore. And I want to say this, know that God is still in control. Trust the Lord. With all your heart, trust the Lord. He knows what He is doing. And when, not if, but when you can't see the end of the tunnel or the end of the valley of the shadow of dark places, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on what you can't figure out. Let go. Trust the Lord. Jesus set the example for us. Hanging on a cross, the Bible says in 1 Peter 2 that he entrusted to himself to one who judges justice. He gave us the example in that moment, nailed to a cross, forsaken of his Father for a time. He entrusted himself to one who judges justice. If you're not yet a Christian and you're in this room, know this, God is working your life. You say, how do I know that? You're here. God brought you here. He put you in this room. He is intimately interested. He knows everything about you. He has not forgotten you. God is greatly interested in you. He cares for you. He knows the pain and sorrow you bear. He knows that your greatest need is for forgiveness and repentance. And he desires not only to fix the consequences of your sin, he also desires to save you and wash you and clean you and clothe you in robes of righteousness and raise you up to set you alongside of Christ. God is calling you to hear the message. This Jesus is the man approved by God, the lamb delivered by God. Notice thirdly, this Jesus is the sacrifice crucified and killed by us. Notice in verse 2 and 23, he says, This Jesus you crucified. And he drives that point home to them. The original recipients of Peter's message of Pentecost were part of the mob crying out for his death at Passover. God's death and plan and purpose for Jesus to be delivered does not remove their responsibility or ours for his crucifixion. Be his clear and direct charge to them and to us. You crucified this Jesus. Can you imagine he's standing there, all those in front of him? We know that 3,000 were saved, so it's likely there was probably more who did not get saved. And all those thousands of men, and Peter points his long finger and says, You crucified him. 
Brothers and sisters, we stand alongside of them. We are responsible for his death. Those men at that time were responsible for having Jesus of Nazareth crucified. They either raised the mob and or participated in it. They cried and shouted for his death. The Roman governor Pilate declared him innocent, but at their cry and their demand, Peter condemned this innocent Jesus. The Roman soldiers cruelly flogged him and nailed him to a cross, and they stood by. These people listening, they stood by, and the Bible says they gave their approval to the things that were being done. The Roman soldiers pierced his side, eager to prove his death, and they were just as eager to see him buried and inside the sealed and guarded tomb. The following of men who thinks you can stand inside the tomb of Jesus and guard it to keep anybody from going in or out. What I found so interesting about this, you go back to the Old Testament, as we all kind of referred to earlier this morning, and when the author brings his offer, though he does, he lays his hand upon the heaven and the wall, and he confesses his sin to God, and then he, not the priest, he takes the knife, reaches down, and cuts the throat of that offering. He kills the offering. I think what about the sovereignty of God, the marvelous way in which God works? He says, You crucified Jesus. And the Old Testament clearly shows that it's the offer who must take and kill the offering. And God, in a marvelous way, incorporates our anger and our sin. And it's our sin that held Christ there. You see, how are we? 2,000 years removed, how are we connected? How is it we can possibly be responsible? We weren't there. We weren't shouting for his death. You know, and some of us even say, what self-righteousness, well, you know, the Bible says, I've never done that. Oh, what did Brothers and sisters, his life and his words were so convicting, so provoking. If we had been there, I assure you, we would have shouted for his death right alongside the rest. Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter says, you and we crucified and killed Jesus. Jesus was not merely tortured for cruel pressure. Jesus did not faint on the cross only to be revived later in a tomb. Jesus died. We eliminated the author of life. Now, this is a very difficult question that I ask here when you think about this in relation to Jesus' own words. Did we actually, or did they, or did the Romans actually take Jesus' life? Some of you should do this. No, we didn't. Why not? Because and some of you are frowning too. It's good. We're glad you're frowning. You're thinking about it. The answer is this. Jesus said in John 10, verses 16 and 17, No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. But Peter's statement is still, you killed him. Now, how can they both be true? The way we resolve that tension is to understand it like this. We bear the guilt for Jesus' death. The Roman soldiers at the Jews' instigation and our sin, we did everything possible under ordinary circumstances to take his human life through crucifixion. We demanded his scourging, created a massive blood loss. Many men, in case you know this, many men were condemned to be scourged and crucified. They made the scourging post and were buried. There was so much blood loss, shock, and trauma to a human body through the brutality of scourging. Many never made it to the cross. 
We demand his scourging. We demand his crucifixion. Creating the exposure, the pain, the shock, the blood loss of ordinary leads to death. But Jesus, being without sin himself, could not die as ordinary men do. Jesus, in order to die, must commend his spirit to God. And he did. John MacArthur makes a really neat comment. He says that when Jesus bowed his head, it's the idea, it's not like he was slumped. Or you know, you see a movies, the guy dies, they kind of all crumple immediately. Like life is kind of gone out of them. He said the word is used for Jesus bowing his head. It's like a little child laying his head on a pillow. He just gently laid his head down. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus died because he commended his spirit to be with God. No man takes my life from me, but we, brothers and sisters, we bear the guilt, the responsibility for crucifying and killing him. We did everything possible to destroy him. Peter's point still stands. We bear the guilt and responsibility for his death. We're all responsible for Jesus' cross, cross and death. Men and women, friends, listen, we're all equally responsible because it was our place that Jesus took when he died. It was for our punishment that Jesus was crucified. It was to attain our freedom that he died. If Jesus hadn't died in our place, we would have no forgiveness of sin whatsoever. But I want you to notice the good news, too. So far, it hasn't been the greatest news. Now, the best news of all, number four, four. Jesus is the Messiah raised by God. Notice verse 24 and verse 32. In 24, Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to, help, to be held by it. Then flip over the page and notice verse number 32. He says, this Jesus, again, great emphatic statement, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Peter said it was not possible for death to hold him. Jesus standing outside of Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus in the tomb. It was absolutely possible for death to hold him all the way through to the end. Jairus' daughter goes to the bed and she's laying on the bed. She's absolutely dead. Death had a claim on her that nothing could revoke it except Jesus. Death had a claim on her. It was not possible. Sorry, it was possible for Jairus' daughter to be held by death. Peter later on in the book of Acts takes the hand of Lemon Dorcas and raises her to life. It was possible for death to hold those three. Those three were raised by the power of God reversing and undoing what was spiritually right. Spiritually, they should have died and stayed dead. That's what the law of the Bible calls for. They were all sinners over whom death had a valid claim, but Jesus was raised from the dead because death had no claim over him. His death was not for his own sin. It was a massively unjust for death to keep a hold of him. And that's why, we're going to see in a second, why David says he would not allow his Holy One to see corruption, that's the decay of the human law. Jesus was raised from the dead because death had no claim over him. He died to pay our penalty. He was proven dead to ensure the full payment. He was buried. His spirit alone was committed up to God. 
I want you to notice, let's go through these verses together, verses 25 down to verse 30, and see the logic of David's arguments. Peter's using David's verses, David's writings and songs to prove his point. David describes in verse number 25 his faith in God. I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. But David also, speaking prophetically, is describing Jesus entrusting himself to the Father. Notice verse 26. He describes the result of that faith and trust in God. He said, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, and my flesh also will dwell in hope. David has a great hope, a great joy, and a great gladness because his faith is in God. He knows that even if he goes into a tomb, at the end it will be a resurrection and he will be raised up out of the tomb. But in a prophetic sense, he also speaks of the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the Bible say? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. He had a joy and a hope because he was entrusting himself to God the Father. Verse 27. In the first part, David's hope of rescue from Hades or hell or Sheol, whichever word they want to use there. As a sinner, who had faith in God, David rightly expected to be saved from hell's claim. He speaks prophetically of Jesus. His soul was not abandoned to hell. George David had a hope of rescue. And then in verse 27 b the second of the verse, he describes something far greater than that. He describes the fact that the Holy One, that's really a key point, notice that, that's the term that's used to describe God all the way through the book of Isaiah. And one of the demons that Jesus cast out says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of Israel. And David is speaking prophetically and he's speaking about Jesus and the fact that Jesus' body would not succumb to the corruption, the decay of the flesh in the tomb. He had absolute hope of being raised. Now, verse 29, Peter affirms that dead, David is still dead and buried. He's in the tomb. You can all say with great confidence, and he can literally point and say, You see the cemetery on there? Look at the big stone that says David King. He's still down there. He's buried. We can all see that. He affirms that David is dead and buried in his tomb. And then in verse 30, Peter describes that David knew. That God had sworn that his descendant would sit on his throne. And that's absolutely key to the whole text. What he's saying is, I know that my descendant, the son of David, Jesus the Messiah, will die and will have to be raised again to be seated. He understood all those years ago the message of the gospel that included the suffering and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Peter's doing is, it's not so much proving the resurrection, he's proving that Jesus is their Messiah, the one they crucified. He is the king who will be raised again. Jesus was raised from the dead because he is the Messiah. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. David clearly recognized that his descendant, in order to rule and reign, must rise from the dead to rule eternally. 
And the argument here under the Holy Spirit's inspiration is carefully constructing is that Jesus is David's descendant and son. He is the man approved by God. He is the one you crucified, who we crucified by our sin and our rebellion against God. But God raised him from the dead. He's the Messiah promised by God and raised by God. Jesus is the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God displayed as approved by God. He's the Holy One of God delivered according to God's plan. He's the Holy One of God for whose crucifixion and death we are responsible. Our sin, my sin and yours, was the one reason for his death. I was one of the reasons for his death, sorry. Our sin demands God's just wrath against us. The question that lands before us, think about all these things, is what must we do in response? Look, a sermon, a message, a devotional, whatever you want to call it. When someone stands and proclaims the word of God, or someone sits in the Bible study and teaches and preaches the word of God, they are like a signpost. And you look at a signpost and you read the sign that says, you know, Melbourne, that way, or Hope, that way, where are you going to go? You see the sign and you stand and go, what a wonderful sign. Wow, it's so amazing. Isn't it cool to stand here at the bottom of the sign and just marvel at the sign? But if you don't take a step in any direction, you don't follow the directions of the sign, the sign is what gets all the glory and you stay exactly where you are. Nothing changes, nothing grows, nothing moves. But brothers and sisters, there is a response that is required from this message. As you're sitting here this morning, almost this afternoon, and listen to this, what is the response? I want to give you those four actions again that you must consider and take in regards to this message, in regard to the message. Number, number one, verse 22, hear these words. I've been sitting here for 35, 40 minutes now. Maybe you're really good at just tuning out and make it look like you're listening to me. I could do that with the best. Growing up my teenage years, I know exactly what to do. You stare at the point about the inch of the preacher's head, and you nod occasionally, and they think you're listening, and you know you're not. Some of you do. Let's see. Hear the words. The words of life. The words from God. They come through a faulty, failing human mouth. But the words of Scripture are the words of God that give us eternal life. Brothers and sisters, listen to what God is saying. Cry out to God in your seat that God will speak to you, that you would hear and understand. Secondly, don't just hear them in one ear, straight out the other one. Receive them. In the idea in verse 41, those who received his words, take them as your own. Jesus died for you. Which means in your own heart, as you say, listen to me, as you say, I realize that Jesus died for me. I realize that he is the man approved by God with mighty works and wonders and signs and displayed for me to see in the scriptures. I realize that Jesus went to a cross. You know, we're enjoying communion and as Noel was speaking, I just look up at that, I guess the same picture on the back screen up there. 
I was just staring at that cross and thinking about the Lamb of God. I can say right now, the words going through my mind were these. For me, Lord, was it for me? Was it for me that you died? The lines on that thought of all I wanted to leave beyond that cross for those hours. As friends and family walked by and shook their heads and scoffed and sneered and said, He saved others. He saved himself. Why'd you come out on the cross? We'll believe you. In two seconds of just contemplating that, struck my heart how much he endured. Received his words, he died for you. The more than just received those words, Peter says, repent. Now some have asked, why doesn't Peter say, trust and repent, or have faith and repent? The idea there is the word repentance isn't just an add-on to the word faith. The idea of repentance actually incorporates the idea of faith. Because repentance is a massive and total change of heart and mind and behavior. It's a total change from depending upon myself to save me. It's a total change for me depending on doing all the good works like the possibly do so that God will accept me. It's putting that aside. It's depending on myself or something else or some other religious system. I put all of that away and I turn and I throw myself completely on God. That change of heart includes faith towards God. Crying out to God to save us in faith that he will hear and save. So brothers and sisters, men and women sitting here, I don't know where you are before God and how long a man's church makes no difference. Are you repenting of sin? You're turning away from sin to trust in God. If you know Jesus Christ, ask the Lord to show you the habits and attitudes and thoughts that still need to be repented of. I know in my life there are still things that have to be put aside and turned away from. And I know in your life there are still things that you need to repent of that you might walk that much closer to Christ. If you know Christ, rejoice in your heart. Give thanks to God as you hear. But if you don't know Christ, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Listen for his voice calling you to repent and believe and be saved. And the last point, as you brought from the beginning of my message, be baptized. So why am I emphasizing that? It is not because the name on our sign of fallibility says Baptist Church. I'm emphasizing because that's what Peter says. He says, repent, turn away from your sin, change your ways, cry out to God for forgiveness and salvation, and be baptized. Make that public declaration, going through the waters of this baptismal day, to show everybody. I, I gotta say this, like, it was such a joy for one of the folks who baptized His family and friends not feel this side of the church. It was just a thrill to see that one little old brother came up to me and he had a throat cancer or something in order to talk and put his finger on the side of his thing to make the voice work. 
He told me he already had cancer for 21 years and God has spared him. And he rejoiced to see this day, to see his friend baptized. Brothers and sisters, baptism is not a ritual that saves you. It's a ritual, it's an ordinance, a step of obedience we go through to declare to everybody else that we know the Lord and we're going to follow Him. We're willing to go through a thing like getting dunked publicly with our clothes on to show that we have died to sin, we've been raised to a new life in Christ, and we walk now in obedience to Jesus. Peter says, Repent and be baptized. Something I want to do that I don't think I've ever done before in the church, in this church, you know. We're going to uh, sing the benediction in a few minutes, but what I want to do first is I want to take some time. I've set lots off the I want to give you five, maybe more minutes to sit in total silence. I'd like you to bow your head and do business with God. What is God saying to you this morning? What does God require of you? Will I be quiet? I'll sit over there. In a few minutes, I'll close in prayer and then I'll sing to you. But I want you to take some time and you do business with God. Respond to whatever God is calling and saying to you. Great God and Heavenly Father, we are here before you. Father, you know the heart of every man, young person with old in this room. Father, you know our hearts and our state before you even more than we do. Father, I believe that you plead, O oh God, for a great work of the Holy Spirit. Father, for those who do not know the Lord Jesus, Father God, Father, I plead with you that by the power of the Spirit of God you would touch them, change them, Father, open their eyes and awaken them to see the horror of their sin and the wondering reality of sin. Help them to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, for those who are in this room and have been here for one day or 30 years, Father, some may think that they have found faith in Christ, but Father, there is no fruit. There is no reality of a changed life. Father, I plead with you that you would open their eyes and awaken them to see where they really stand before you. Father, let them not understand their standing by their own but Father, make it plainer to understand. Father, for those who are here this morning who have begun to walk with you, and the walk is staggered and faltered, there is a point of obedience in which we have pulled back and said, I can't go that far. Father, I plead with you by the power of the Spirit of God that you would confront us. Let us see the thing that needs to be surrendered. Let us see, O oh God, show us what must be done, what must be said, what must be fixed. Father, that we will know what it is to truly repent. 
And Father, to walk with a greater and a deeper devotion to the Lord Jesus. Oh God, I plead with you that we would not become a religious people doing religious duty and religious things on a religious day. But we would be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in heart and soul and mind and strength that we would love the Lord our God with everything we have, holding not nothing, surrendering all to Him, being willing, as Jesus said, to follow Him, taking up our cross, denying ourselves and following Him every day. Father, for those who are walking well with You, Father, whose hearts are struggling and downcast with weights of sorrow, weights of discouragement, weights of one form or another. Father, we pray that you would lift their gaze, strengthen them, O oh God, for the journey. Strengthen them to walk a little further, to go a little longer, Father, to persevere, to continue and finish the race, God. Father, Paul's words to Timothy in the last letter he wrote, some have gone this direction and some have gone this other direction. Loving this present world. Oh God, we would not be a people who have departed the faith because we love this present world. Father, we pray that you would give us the perseverance by the power of the Spirit of God to steadfastly follow Jesus wherever he leads us. Father, we pray too for those who are walking well with you. Oh God, give them refresh and renew and greatly increase their joy as they walk with you. Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you, O oh God, from the bottom of our hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ who has suffered unspeakable pain and sorrow and brokenheartedness on the cross. Father, we realize again from Paul's words that he died for our transgressions and that he was raised again for our justification. What a great Savior we have, O oh God. Those words we were seeing before, hallelujah, what a Savior. Father, we thank you again for our time. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.